Church, we do gather in the name of an incredible Savior and God today who uh, loves us, who loves us um, deeply and who loves us unfailingly, unfailingly and uh, a love that uh, we learn about through His Word. So let me invite you to open up God's Word with me once again this morning. We'll be in the book of Revelation, the final book of uh, scripture, as we return to this portion of God's Word, we've, uh, we're there for quite some time, and then we took a several week break, and now we come back to conclude uh, this, uh, this great book of, of the Bible. If you don't have uh, a copy of the Scriptures with you, let me encourage you to use a pew Bible, and you can find this text on page 1001. Uh, but we return to uh, this book under the series title, uh, A Tale of Two Cities. You see, John, who is a disciple of Jesus, one of the original 12 followers of of Jesus and the author of Revelation, uh, concludes this book, which concludes uh, God's word. He he concludes it by contrasting two cities, the city of God with the city of man. And in John's informed yet artistic portrayal, the city of man called Babylon, Uh, representing the world, mimics the city of God called the New Jerusalem, representing heaven. See, Babylon appears to offer much of what we associate with heaven. Purpose and pleasure, riches, satisfaction and enjoyment, but it is a poor substitute for heaven. John combines art and intellect to vividly portray the marked difference between uh, following Jesus and following the ways of the world. And because our forever future is at stake, let's hear what he has to say. Let's hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us through his word today. Let me invite you, as is our custom here, uh, to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of, of God's holy word. I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 17. I'll read uh, the chapter in its entirety. Let's hear The word of the Lord John writes, he says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters with her. The kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away into the in the spirit into a wilderness There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast. Because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. 
The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. And the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Would you bow with me? Father, we bow before you this morning expressing our faith in you. Lord, acknowledging our need for you and expressing trust in your word. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead us, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, give us understanding and wisdom, give us humility, that we might respond to your word in a way that glorifies the name of Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I think... Uh, This text indicates uh, Revelation is quite a unique piece of literature. Revelation is highly symbolic. It's written in a particular literary style uh, that was popular in John's day, not so popular in our day, a type of style that expressed meaning through symbolism, promising an end-time intervention of God to reverse present injustices in the world. In other words, it was a type of literature uh, that uh, God used under the inspiration of the Spirit through human authors to encourage His people to trust Him and to trust His timing and His perfect plans in bringing all things uh, right. It is a style that's foreign to most of us today, presenting uh, interpretive challenges. But with a proper approach and careful study, its central message, I think, becomes uh, quite clear. You see, John wrote Revelation to encourage believers. He wrote it to instruct and encourage the church to be faithful and to persevere, reminding us that God is sovereign and warning us against compromising our devotion to Jesus by succumbing to the ways of the world. But let's be honest, the ways of the world are often attractive, aren't they? You see, evil doesn't always present itself through civil wars and violence. We know this. But it also comes by way of romance and excitement, of lust and luxury. Evil rears its ugly head as a beast covered with blasphemous names. But also as a seductive woman dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls with a golden cup in her hand. Verses 3 and 4. You see, the beautiful side of evil is the opposite of the Proverbs 31 woman. Charm is deceptive and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. But here's a woman who has charm, who is beautiful, but who does not fear the Lord. 
She stands in stark contrast to the bride of the Lamb that we'll be introduced to in chapter 21. Uh, This glamorous harlot represents the seductive side to evil that the inhabitants of the earth find attractive and compelling. She captivates, ensnares, and intoxicates all who are not devoted to the Lamb. The angel is clear that like the great city, Babylon, she represents the dominant world system throughout the ages that fails to bow its knee to God. John's great prostitute reminds us that the world offers passing pleasure, power, and prosperity. You see, John's portrait of the world's beauty queen is meant to capture our attention. But we're not meant to take this lightly. It's uh, meant to cause us to perk up and to listen to what God has to say. It's meant to warn us that like John and like the inhabitants of the world, we are prone to stand astonished by her offer of glitz and glamour and self-glorification. She is John's image of self-worship, of idolatry, of moral relativism. Relativism, even ultimate devotion to the American dream, all wrapped up in one. It is precisely because she is so attractive that the angel reminds John, reminding us that the world is earning God's judgment. The world is earning God's judgment. Verse 1, the angel uh, tells us that uh, the angel's purpose is to show John the punishment of the great prostitute. And though her fame reaches across the earth and her fortune appears unmatched, Her future is bleak because God's judgment is coming. Wars and abuse, rape, murder, abortion and euthanasia, human trafficking and human slavery, racial discrimination, corporate bullying and private tax evasion, all evils perpetually practiced in the world, earning the coming judgment of God. Friends, the world offers passing pleasure, power, and prosperity, earning God's judgment and seducing the world's inhabitants. Seducing the world's inhabitants. You know, some evils are are regularly uh, condemned even by the world, but others are far more welcome. Massive, massive consumption of pornography today that fuels human trafficking. The glorification of graphic violence continually produced by Hollywood and consumed in our homes that has desensitized us to real violence and directly contributing to countless copycat crimes and violence and mass shootings. The support of a multi-billion dollar gambling industry that preys upon the poor and contributes to addiction. The maximizing of personal debt for the sake of present luxury at the expense of our ability to contribute to the cause of Christ. And the needs of the poor. You see the ugly side of evil is fairly easy to spot. But the beautiful side of evil is far far more attractive. Because it says to me life is all about me. Right? Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But according to God. Everything in the world. 1 John chapter 2 verse 16. Everything in the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, the Bible says, pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. I don't know about you, but but I want to live forever. 
I want my life to count for something bigger, something more than the fleeting, the passing pleasure and power and prosperity that's offered in this world. I want to lay up treasures in heaven. Listen to what Jesus, our Savior, says to first century affluent congregation of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, we read about this a number of weeks ago. Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says to this church, He says, You say, I am rich. You say you have it all. You say I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See, according to the Bible, the reality is that worldly pleasure and power and prosperity uh, will soon pass away. It will soon decay, earning no one a place in God's eternal city. For that, you and I must turn and trust in the living God. Exchanging love for the world for love for Jesus. Friend, the question God's Word calls me to ask you this morning is this. Do you love Jesus more than the world? Friend, do you love Jesus more than the world? Do you love Jesus more than the things of this this world? Are, Are you willing to give up things for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to give up the pornography? Are you willing to give up the cohabitation? Are you willing to give up the extravagant and luxurious standard of living? Are you willing to give up your obsession with the latest and the greatest iPhone or tablet or television or pair of shoes for the sake of your relationship with Jesus, for the sake of making Christ known in the world. Friends, would you and I rather have Jesus or the fleeting, passing beauty of this world? Psalm 27, verse 4. David writes, he prays, he sings, he says, One thing I ask from the Lord. He says, This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. He says, this is my desire more than anything is to be with the Lord. I'm confident that as King David penned that psalm, he was longing for his Lord. He wanted to be with his Lord. Friend, do you want to be with the Lord? Do you love Jesus more than this world? Temporary self-glory and gratification is no substitute. It is a poor substitute for lasting provision in the presence of the one who made us and who redeems us. The way of Christ and the way of the world collide. For the world opposes Christ and his kingdom. The world, by and large, on the whole, past, present, future, until the return, opposes Christ and his kingdom. You see, because of past and present sin, they are incompatible. From generation to generation, the governments, the systems, and the people of the world seek to silence Christ's call to sacrifice and surrender. Now we know this, some of, some governments and rulers and corporations and various systems and industries more than others. These are not all equal. So we ought to be diligent in faith. We, We ought to pray for those. For the leaders of corporations. We ought to pray for our government leaders. We ought to pray for those who have influence and power. We ought to pray that the Lord uses them and fills them and shapes them. Uses them for His glory in our own lives. In fact, today is a day many Christian leaders have set aside to encourage their congregations to pray specifically for President Trump. And we ought to do that this morning. 
We're going to do that. We're going to pause now. We're going to do that. We know as believers, as followers of Jesus, uh, the president is, is not our savior, but nor is he our enemy. And we have to pray that the Lord would use him and convict him and fill him and, and shape him and give him wisdom and discretion and that he would stand upon things that honor and glorify the name of Jesus. So let's pause and do that. Would you bow with me? Father, we do come before you now and we recognize and acknowledge that this world is not our home. Because of sin, our sin, this world is, is flawed. It is decaying. It is not our permanent place of residence. But Lord, right now you have us here. And Lord, as we are here, we pray that we would be the best citizens, Lord, and the most faithful employees. And Lord, we give you thanks for living in a day and time where we have freedoms and opportunities to worship you, unlike many believers who have gone before us, unlike many believers today around the world. And Lord, today we lift up our president to you. Father, we thank you for him and others to lead us. And we pray that you would shape and convict, that you would do an extraordinary work in his life. Father, I pray that that if he has not trusted you, that you would convict him of the error of his ways and that he would bow his knees before Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you are able. And we pray that as long as he is in a position of power and authority over us, Lord, that you would use him, that you would give him wisdom. Lord, that you would give him courage to stand upon things that glorify your name. Father, we lift him up today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We ought to be a people who heed the call of Scripture and pray for those who are in positions of leadership and authority over us. But we know by and large, presently, pastly, certainly into the future, we can expect the world to oppose Jesus and his kingdom because the gospel is just too invasive. Friends, it's too personal. It's too confrontational. It's it's too critical. It's too restraining. Jesus, how dare you... Demand I repent and bow the knee to you, the world cries. I am perfectly capable of calling my own shots, of determining my own way, of choosing what I want and building my life upon what matters to me. You see, the world opposes Christ and his kingdom, which means it also opposes his people when they are living for him. And one of the ways that the world opposes Christ's kingdom of justice and mercy is by taking innocent life. Taking innocent life. Verse 6, Revelation 17, John says, he says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. That's simply a reference to believers, followers of Jesus Christ, who here have given their lives For the sake of honoring Jesus. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. A graphic image image of, of martyrdom and opposition. You see, when Christians live by and promote a message that doesn't jive with the ways of the world, there will be persecution, the Word says. There will be suffering, even death. Because in the the words of one author, the world is driven by self-interest and is willing to sacrifice others to promote its own benefits And prosperity, we know this. We see this all over the place. Sacrificing others for the sake of of, of self-interest and prosperity. We see this all across the globe. With abortion and euthanasia, 
With genocide and infanticide, life is increasingly discounted at both its beginning and its end, as well as for the economically, ethnically, and socially marginalized. And might we also add to that list uh, victims of trafficking and slavery and unjustly cheap labor and disregard for orphans, the homeless, and others who are marginalized here and across the globe. You see, the world opposes Christ and his kingdom. It has, it does, and it will until he returns. In this way, the dominant world system is perpetuating wickedness. A cycle of wickedness. Perpetuating wickedness. The angel offers an explanation for this image of the beast and the woman. He says in verse 8, he says, The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. In verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. Some explanation, right? Probably doesn't surprise you, but scholars debate rather regularly the specific identity of the beast and the ten kings, even the seven kings of verse 10, but The basic message, I think, is rather clear. It is this, that kings and rulers of this world have, do, and will continue to oppose Christ and perpetuate wickedness as long as they have their day. But take heart, the angel says, because their days are numbered. Though they rule for a little while, portrayed symbolically, I think, as, as one hour in verse 12. Christ will reign, will soon, will soon see, for a thousand years. Implying forever and ever and ever that their reign is no match for his reign. And elsewhere, John concurs in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. In other words, many ruthless and wicked rulers have led people astray, taking innocent life and perpetuating wickedness as they oppose Christ and his kingdom. But take heart, the angel says, verse 14, for the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Friends, King Jesus will soon destroy the world that opposes him. The Bible is absolutely clear on this. John is certain on this. We can be assured of this, that King Jesus will soon destroy the world that opposes him. How many of you have ever built a sandcastle on the beach? Huh, two of you. (laughs) I bet most of you. My family had opportunity last week to spend a few days at the beach. And it had been quite some time since we had been to the beach. And so the kids were really excited about this. It was terribly hot, uh, as I understand it was here. And so we would get up in the morning and get to the beach before it got hot, spend a couple hours, and then go back uh, and cool off in the pool or in the house uh, and get uh, comfortable. But one morning... The tide was low. Every morning I think we went out, it was low. But we could see this uh, on this morning that it was rising rather quickly. And so the kids and Uncle Thomas and I decided that uh, this presented a good challenge to build a sandcastle that can withstand the waves of the ocean. And so we took it upon ourselves uh, to do so with our uh, relatively limited repertoire of sand tools that we had in our possession. We began building a castle uh, and digging a moat around it, even putting a release uh, canal in it. Uh, and then uh, as we saw the waves coming, we uh, quickly scrambled to, f- to firm up uh, a wall of sand in front of the castle to withstand uh, the breaking waves. And we finished just in time. We stood back and to 
watch our, our work. The first wave came, gently hitting the wall and filling the moat with water. All was well. Here comes the second wave. A little more water, same result, just uh, still okay. Everything's fine. Third wave follows. The wall is damaged, the moat is full, and feelings are hurt. <laughs> Soon after, here comes wave number four and wave number five, and the wall falls and the castle is flooded. What took more than an hour to build was undone in minutes, and such will be the end of the world, church, as we know it. Christ will come again and destroy the world that opposes Him and establish His eternal kingdom. Peter tells us about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow in doing this. He's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He says, instead, He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, he wants everyone to to turn and trust in him for salvation. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. I'm convinced that John describes that day. The day of the Lord multiple times throughout Revelation, emphasizing its certainty and its pervasiveness. It's Armageddon in chapter 16. It's the great supper of God in chapter 19, as if John is cycling through vivid descriptions of life on earth and life in heaven and what will become of each in order to encourage believers to follow Christ in the present. Christian, be encouraged today. If you know Jesus, be encouraged today. Take heart today. For King Jesus will soon destroy the world that opposes Him, yet saving those who follow Him. He will save those who follow Him. He will spare them His judgment. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will never face the judgment of God. Angel declares that the rulers of this world, verse 14, will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And don't miss this. And with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Church, we will be with Him. The victory will not be dependent upon us. Notice no assignment is given us here, implying that we are probably just spectators in this swift and sound defeat of Satan and his allies. Friend, you will be with him if the Lord has called you to know and to follow him. If you've turned to Christ and trusted in him for salvation, heed his call today. Receive forgiveness for your sins and life in him. Become a follower of the Lamb. God initiates this salvation. He is the instigator and source of it, yet we are responsible We are fully responsible for responding in faith, for turning and trusting in Christ and proving our faith in Him by living for Him until He returns. You see, according to God's Word, King Jesus will soon destroy the world that opposes Him, saving those who follow Him while turning evil against evil. Turn evil upon evil. The world will self-destruct. This is where the text ends. A world obsessed with money and pleasure and power beginning to turn on itself. The sovereign plan and timing of the Almighty God, the ultimate consumer society, will begin to consume itself. And on that day, the glitz and glamour worshipped by this world will come to naught. It will not last, nor will it ultimately satisfy. So friends, we have a choice. As we always do when we open up God's Word, we 
called to respond. We have a choice this morning, the same choice, the same difficult decision that confronts every culture. The same decision that faced first century residents of Asia Minor faces 21st century citizens of Birmingham, Alabama. And this is it. Will we live for self or will we live for God? Will we live for self or will we live for God? Though in some respects, vastly, vastly different worlds, both Rome and Washington ultimately call us to live for self. Our sinful proclivity, our sinful tendency prods us to live for self, to put first myself, but the gospel calls us to sacrifice self and to live for God. So the gospel calls the self Absorbed to self-sacrifice and surrender to Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, the central message of God's word, calls us to self-sacrifice and to surrender to Jesus. This is not the way of the world, but it is the way of Christ's kingdom. It is the way of lasting purpose and ultimate satisfaction. So friend, are you full of self? Or are you full of Jesus? And Jesus said to them all in Luke chapter 9, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow me. Are you following Jesus? If so, your life is going to stand out in this world for it will reflect the values and the priorities of Christ's eternal kingdom. So do you look more like a citizen of heaven or an inhabitant of the world? Do you look like a citizen of God's eternal kingdom? One who's been changed by the grace of God, who's continually being transformed more and more into the character of your Lord Jesus Christ, or do you look more like an inhabitant of the world? You see, inhabitant of the earth or inhabitant of the world is a stock phrase used again and again by John throughout Revelation to to describe those who don't believe. Those who are too much at home here. Those who have not turned to Jesus for salvation. You must be one or the other. In which city, friend, do you belong? I'm going to close this morning by reading Paul's words to the church in Philippi in the first century. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and following. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But speaking to the church, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I ask you this morning, are you awaiting the savior's return? Or are you fully satisfied here? Do you love Jesus more? And the things of this world. Father help us to do so. Lord fill us. With a sense of your presence. With assurance of the peace that you extend to us. By your grace. 
the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Father, we acknowledge this morning as believers that that we believe in the truths of your word. And yet, we also acknowledge that as sinners, it is so hard to live by them. Father, convict us and encourage us, shape us by the presence and power of your Spirit to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ until he returns. Help us know what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. Lord, to be salt and to be light. To settle down and to take root here and to live lives that ultimately impact culture and family and employees and fellow students and classmates and neighbors for the glory of Jesus Christ, but Lord, having our our eyes and our minds and our hearts set on your eternal kingdom. Lord, lead us to be faithful. Lead us to respond to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.